Matthew chapter 28. These are the words of Jesus to his followers. Uh, This is what I would describe as post-resurrection. So last week, we looked at the subject of the resurrection, Jesus rising it from the dead and the implications of that for us. Today, we're going to looking at the the message that Jesus has to say to his followers. Um, So now the resurrection has happened. Now what? Like, what's what's next? What are we to do next? Are we just to hang, chill, do nothing, sit around with this, like, radical fact in in our back pocket? Like, oh, that's right. Jesus rose again from the dead. Wonderful. What should we do now? Um, Jesus has some really important words to share uh, to his early followers, and I want to unpack those for us to really kind of ask ourselves, um, what are we supposed to be doing? Like, what what does it look like to really be faithful to God? Uh, Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And this is God's word. Uh, let's pray. God, thank you for what you have to speak to us today. We pray that you would just give us ears to hear. Help us to realize the depth of your promise to always be with us, to carry us, to sustain us, um, God, I pray that this morning you'd help us to really have a clear picture as to what it is that you've called us to do. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Uh, why don't y'all grab a seat? I want to start with a, uh, a quote from one of my famous, uh, uh, favorite uh, theologians, the famous, well-known guy by the name of uh, N.T. Wright. He says this, um, the resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. It is the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you're now invited to belong to it. So what I want to wrestle with is this question um, that I think probably the early apostles and followers of Jesus wrestled with was, okay, great, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Now what? What are we supposed to do now? Um, and I think to some degree, this is a question that a lot of people in the modern world, we, we, we wrestle with, we question. Um, contrary to popular belief, I think I have a quote up here, that contrary to popular belief, that Jesus did not aim to start a new religion. I, I want you to pause and just let that sentence sink in. Um, I don't know what you think about Jesus. I don't know what you think about Christianity, but I'm just, I'm unmasking the reality. Jesus did not come to start a new religion. All right, Jesus did not come to just be like, hey, let's start this whole new thing that's in line with you know, Buddhism over here and Confucianism over here and Judaism over here and let's create a new one, um, stack it in the whole list of menu options and we'll call it Christianity. That is not at all what Jesus came to do. Rather, Jesus, came, uh, Jesus uh, he launched new creation, a new humanity and ultimately a new way to live. Th- that's what he came to offer. That's what is being described in the New Testament. That's how the early writers of Christianity saw what Jesus was doing. That's what Christians, early Christians, had observed and understood and lived into. And I would even say, then that raises the question, what's happened? Like, why is there oftentimes this gap between what is experienced in Christian circles, maybe Christendom, Christian churches, whatever, and or what's written in the New Testament. And I, and I would say the gap oftentimes is that any organization or anything that launches as a movement can very easily become institutionalized and organized and over-organized to the point where it has lost its genuine 
uh, reason for existence. And it's one of the reasons why I think it's very easy for us to kind of commoditize, commoditize, is that a, is that a word? Um, to kind of create into a commodity, right? Like the idea of Christianity, the church, to like simply reduce it into uh, like here's these little pockets or packets where you can go to church. And this church has great music, but horrible teaching. This church has great teaching, but horrible music. This church has fantastic children's ministry, but everything else sucks. And we kind of create these like little segments segments of like what Christianity is all about. And I, and I would suggest that what we've done is we've missed the very point. We've missed the mark. What's happened is we've, we've become sort of critiques, uh, critics of what these like systems and organizations are. But at the very heart of it, we, we miss the very purpose. That I would suggest that simply thinking of Christianity or doing gathering together, um, that just simply gets reduced to nothing more than just an hour and a half service per week. And the rest of the week, you just, it's, that's yours to do however you want, live however way that you want. And then once in a while, you just kind of dip into church and that's about it, is, is to miss the very purpose of what Jesus came to do. And I would even say uh, that's a tragedy because it's literally missing the very, very big, massive scope of what God is up to in this world. You're missing something that is so life-giving. And to even add another layer to it, we are actually settling for something that's far less than God intends. That's the big tragedy. So with that being said, um, what is God up to in this world? What's he inviting us into? And this is what I really want to try to consider and think about in this passage. Um, Before we jump into taking a look at what does it look like to actually live in light of the resurrection, I want to just simply point out what Jesus does not say. Because I think um, what's fascinating to me is what's not on the menu of what Jesus describes. So number one, when Jesus starts out this little section here, he says this really important phrase. We'll actually come back and look at this in a second. But he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then what's fascinating to me is what Jesus does not say after that statement. So number one, what Jesus does not say after that statement is something like this. Hey guys, all authority all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, I'm going to go out and start a brand new religion. And I'm going to do this all on my own. He doesn't say that. Listen to what he says again. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go. That's an odd thing to say. Because if you are making this boast, if you're making this claim, you're like, hey, I am the ruler of this entire household, or I run, I'm the ultimate highest supreme authority of my Taco Bell, therefore I will rule it well. Like, you're not going to say, all authority over this Taco Bell has been given to me, therefore you go do your best. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make any sense in a natural sense, but it makes all the sense in the biblical storyline. Let me give you an example. Genesis chapter 1, the very first page of the entire Bible, starts with this depiction where God creates what? It's an interesting phrase. Jesus taps into this, right? This is a hyperlink, by the way. If you've ever read the Bible and you read the little phrases like this, it's a hyperlink. The the idea is it's meant to take you back to a larger storyline. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, the whole creation is mine. I, I created it all. I'm the author of it all. Because of that, I'm sending you into it to go do something, which is a total, complete reconnection with what was lost. So in the very opening pages sequence of the Bible is you see God created heaven and earth and then inviting Adam and Eve, calling them 
to then go out and be rulers over creation of heaven and earth, or at least the earth, right? To have children, to garden well, to work and to exercise, to rule and reign over all things. This, this was the original storyline of the Bible. But again, if you follow the storyline, you realize that that's, that's not what ultimately ended up happening. Rather than them ruling over creation, creation ends up ruling over them because everything becomes hard. It's hard having children. It's hard, you know, working the grounds at once where it, it appears if fruit came easily, now fruit comes with the result of hard labor and toil and sweat of the brow. There's all of these consequences that end up happening. And what we see Jesus seems to be doing is picking up from Genesis chapter 3, saying, hey, that whole project, creation, it's been brought back into reality. And because I rule and reign over all creation from heaven and earth, which is another way of saying from top to bottom and everything in between, I rule, I have authority over all, I, I am now sending you into it. That, that's, again, we'll, we'll unpack more than just a second. But notice he's not saying, I rule over all things, therefore I'm going to just simply do everything. It's, it's a radical departure from how we would maybe normally think God's aim is to invite you into whatever he's up to in this world. Just pause and think about that and hold on to that thought. Next thing that we see that Jesus does not say, he doesn't say all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore stop cussing, stop watching R-rated movies, stop downloading porn, stop sleeping with a girlfriend, stop listening to Katy Perry, and go to church as often as you can. In other words, he doesn't just give us a bunch of rules and regulations to somehow abide by. Nor is he just simply throwing out a list of moralities by which you're supposed to now line your life up with. Here's what I want to say about that. Is does God care about morality? Of course he does. Absolutely he does. But that's not what Jesus says here. You would again think that if he's going to be talking about the extenuation of his authority and kingship, that he would now then begin to give us a list of morality to line our lives up according to. But instead he does something different. And here's what I want to suggest to you. Why this is a big deal. Because in the new creation that God is launching is to understand what Jesus did on the cross and then from the grave is what Jesus is up to is he's completely undermining the whole order of death and all of its friends and he's launching life in new creation. Does God care about morality? Of course he does. Does God care about how you live your life? Of course he does. There's all sorts of New Testament passages that identify that. But to just simply reduce what Jesus is up to, to being nothing more than a bunch of rules and regulations and morality to somehow align your life up, is to miss the big point. What is the big point behind it? The big point behind it is that what Jesus is doing is he's completely undermining death and all of its friends. What that means is that we are now invited to align our lives with what life looks like. So this is, a, this is a hefty subject to consider because many of the actions and activities and ways in which we organize our lives and how we think about our sexuality and how we think about our money and how we think about all hosts of other things have been laced with death. So it's not just a matter of like, is this right or wrong? It's a matter of like, is this in alignment with death or is this entering into the new creation that Jesus is launching? Does that make sense? You guys doing Okay. We all right? Good. So the point that I would make is that what Jesus is launched upon this planet throughout all the cosmos is he's doing away with death and all of its friends and replacing it with life. And he's inviting us to walk in a way, to live our lives in such a way that lives in alignment 
with all things that are life-giving. And at the same time, to identify those areas that are laced with death and to remove ourselves from those things, to move away from those things. So again, how this shapes the way that you think about a host of num- a number of topics is absolutely vital to you. So yes, God cares about morality, but he cares about morality in the sense that to give ourselves over to ideas and concepts that are still laced with death and heavily laced with death is to lead to continual brokenness. And one final thing I would say on this, and I'll move on, is it's not consistent with the way of life that God's calling us into. This is why this matters. This is why your morality, your choices in life, they actually matter because life has conquered death. And to live in ways that are still laced with death is to live in ways that are in contradiction. What Jesus has accomplished on the cross and from the grave and is taking the whole world into. Does that make sense? So what I want to move on to now is what is Jesus up to? What does it look like to actually live in light of resurrection? There's four things. We'll go through these real quickly and we'll wrap it up. Number one is Living a life of resurrection means to orient our lives around a brand new authority. This is what Jesus said. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This is basically, again, Jesus' way of saying uh, the whole opening sequence of Genesis. Um, that, that's me. All authority is, is mine. It's to live under a new authority. Now, I don't know about you, but all of us in this life, to some degree, we have given ourselves over to alternative authorities. Uh, if you have a hard time even thinking through this, just think of what authors its ways upon your soul. That, that's what authority is. Something has influence over you. We all have things that we have given ourselves over to that have influences over. I've mentioned this before, that there's at least three areas that cause us to think the thoughts that we think and act the ways that we act and do the things that we do. Three at least. No, number one is our family of origin, like our backstory, the things that have happened to us, the things that we have done, the, the, the baggage that we carry, however you want to think of it. All of that shapes us. It shapes the way that we act. It shapes the way that we respond. It shapes the way that we think. Our backstories are powerful, persuasive influencers of our life. The second thing is culture at large. We have a culture that's not benign. <laughs> it's, it's constantly, it's our, I like to think of our culture is radically evangelistic. Radically evangelistic. It's constantly preaching its message. And it's, it's many, many messages, and oftentimes many of those messages contradict each other. One of the simple ways in which it contradicts each other is on one hand, it says you can have six-pack abs that looks like, you know, the most amazing sexy person in the world, and at the same time, you can eat as much incredible food as you want. Like, we know that that's just simply not true. Um, But the point that I would make is that our culture is constantly seeking to influence us to to do things. So the culture's a powerful influencer. The third thing is what Bible describes as the unseen realm, unseen forces, spiritual forces that oftentimes are very low profile. We don't even really recognize or understand to the degree that they are causing us to be influenced by some of these things. And the point that I'd make is this, is that what it means to live in light of the resurrection is to orient our lives around a brand new authority in which Jesus is that king. This is a lifelong practice, by the way, guys. This doesn't happen overnight. I mean, the initial, like, Jesus, I make you the king of my life, that happens at a point, but it also happens on a repeat, because we're always prone to drift. Like, we just sang the song, like, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, take my heart, Lord, and seal it, seal it for your 
courts above. It's, a, it's a, just a way of just recognizing, God, keep me on a, on a leash. Let it be a short leash because I'm constantly drifting, constantly pulling away. And I need to be regularly, frequently reminded of this, that you are the king over all things. You're the king that offers life. Again, tapping this whole idea into the original sequence of the story of creation. We see that when God made Adam and Eve, uh, he gives them, tasks them with this incredible opportunity to rule and reign over all creation. Okay, so think about it this way. If you were to be appointed to be the ultimate highest manager over, you know, your, your Taco Bell, um, what's number one thing that is required of you other than learning how to use the guac gun, right? You, you at some point will have to learn how to manage well. You will have to learn how to, you'll, have, you'll need wisdom. Where are you going to get that wisdom from? You're going to have to talk to the owner of the whole shop, and he's going to give you wisdom. This is the way that God organized creation. Adam and Eve were given this task of ruling over all creation. What they needed was wisdom to discern right from wrong, good from evil, light from dark, from God. But instead, they deferred. Rather than turning to God, they were deceived and turned to this alternate source, the serpent. And they fell, and they continued to fall. And we have inherited that same distrust towards the God who made us and who loves us and invites us to rethink what it means to live under his authority. So second thing that we see is living in light of resurrection not only involves orienting our lives around a new authority, it also involves entering into the highest place of belonging. Uh, think about what Jesus says here again. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is a really unique phrase. And again, I kind of skipped ahead. We'll come back and look at the other passages that were just before this. But the implication is that the followers of Jesus to whom he's referring to uh, either had been baptized or were about to get baptized. But the idea is that they were initiated into something, a place of belonging. Um, this taps into the very core of what it means to be human beings. And I would suggest that every single one of us, we live in this world in which we cannot and refuse to live just simply being anonymous. But on the one hand, we, we kind of want to be anonymous. We want to be able to have that sense of I'm in control of everything. But on the other hand, we cannot live there for very long without feeling this deep ache in our soul. Because we were made for community. The only problem with community is you cannot have community and autonomy. Many of us, we want to be, we want to have all these unlimited freedoms. But at the same time, we're like, I want to be known. I want to be known. I want to have deep community. And what I want to suggest to you, that's a contradiction. You cannot have both. Let me tell you about my marriage. I've been married 28 years. And to be able to be married means I lose my freedom. No, I'm serious. I, I don't mean that in a bad way. I, I've not, maybe not lose. Uh, I've surrendered my freedom. I've given up rights that I might have as a single dude to do what I want, when I want, how I want, because I'm actually getting something better. I'm getting a deep soul community with my wife. I cannot have unlimited freedom and unlimited community. It's, it's, they're two mutually exclusive terms. And what Jesus invites us into is you are being brought into this sense of highest place of belonging. All of us, to some degree, we feel that ache of wanting to be a part of something, but to some degree, always feeling as if we're just on the outs of it. I mean, all sorts of sociologists have been discovering and identifying and researching this modern phenomenon that we look at today of social media, 
where on the one hand, it provides this deep sense of like, I can know anything about everybody anywhere around the world at any time, like live. But at the same time, I feel more disconnected and they're proving and demonstrating that we actually feel more disconnected. Do you realize this is another interesting thing that, that they've been discovering? That actual teenage sex rates have dropped significantly. Now, someone would be like, oh, that's awesome. Everyone's become a Christian. Nope, unfortunately, that's not the case. What's happening is people don't know how to engage with each other anymore. They're not hanging out at like, you know, local Dairy Queens and just chilling because they're sitting at home on their phones, constantly feeling depressed. And the point that I would make is this plays into the whole deep sense of belonging. Where do I belong? Who loves me? Who knows me? Who's willing to walk by me in the midst of my garbage and love me in spite of it? Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, baptize them in the name of the Father. Baptism. Now, again, this is where the word baptism needs to kind of have some flesh and bones put to it. The idea of baptism has always been understood to be a form of initiation. You're being initiated, brought into, swept into something that you once were not a part of. Uh, in fact, early Christians, they would go through what was called a catechesis, uh, catechism. as a way of like learning um, certain truths about who God is, unlearning certain truths about what they had come to believe about themselves and about God and about their neighbor, and then to learn truths about who God is. And one of the things that they would oftentimes say, which, you know, maybe ending up becoming a practice that we will ourselves do, is that they would oftentimes say this like little like statement, this creedal statement. And part of that creedal statement was, I renounce Satan and his ways, and I'm going to be baptized. The whole idea was that to be baptized is an act of spiritual warfare against an alternative kingdom that once I owned my allegiance to. I was deceived by, I was ruined by, I was swept up into death by, but now because of the grace and the kindness and love of Jesus, I now belong to his kingdom. And I'm renouncing that kingdom of darkness and I'm receiving the kingdom of light. I'm going into the waters of baptism to remind myself I belong entirely to someone new who loves me, who's given himself for me. This is what baptism is. And we see that living in light of resurrection really means entering into the highest place of belonging. So I don't know about you. Maybe you've never been baptized. I mentioned this earlier. Um, my, my hope would be that you would really think about what kingdom do you belong to now? To whom do you give your highest allegiance or your authority? Who is the authority of your life? If Jesus is that authority, uh, my, my hope would be that you would be initiated by way of the waters of baptism into his kingdom in a very tangible sense and recognize that it all plays into this whole storyline. You belong someplace good. Thirdly is it involves, oh, sorry, I want to read this quote. This is a great quote. Another N.C. Wright quote. He says this, those in whom the Holy Spirit lives are God's new temple. They are individually and corporately places where heaven and earth meet. It's such a great passage to consider that Think about it this way, that those to whom Jesus belongs, if you're a follower of Jesus here today, that the triune God is taking a presidency within your life. And that when we come together in critical mass, like what we do here on a Sunday morning, there's something unique about this space that cannot be replicated. You, by you just not coming, right? It cannot be replicated. There's something unique. You might not feel like something unique happens, but something unique happens when we come together that God says, Heaven and earth 
are overlapping. We just to pause and just think about that right now. Right now in this place, heaven and earth. This is a zone, a space where heaven and earth have, have come together because we are a temple. We're the place where God resides. He loves us. We have a place of belonging. Thirdly, we see that living in light of resurrection also means stepping into the work of new creation. Um, listen to how C.S. Lewis puts this again. First of all, read the passage where Jesus describes this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So uh, we are given these instructions that Jesus is saying, go and to make disciples. The big idea behind this is to invite people to be where you were. You guys are disciples. He's obviously speaking, speaking to his, his disciples, saying, you guys have been disciples. Now you go and, and make disciples. The big idea that I want you to think about is that we have work to do. We have a commission that we've been given. I think one of the biggest challenges, one of the reasons why I think we as followers of Jesus can drift very easily is because we lose sight of the fact that we have been given a commission. And when we lose sight of the fact of meaning, then at some point we drift down. Again, we have these cultural forces that are constantly pushing and forcing and evangelizing themselves upon us. We have our backstory and our past and our baggage that we carry that oftentimes is influencing that. And we have these demonic realms and forces that are constantly influencing us. And it makes total sense as to why it's easy for us to lose sight of this. But what I want for us to at least consider to think about that we have and we, an invitation to be part of this work of new creation that God is up to in this world. Listen to how N.C. Wright puts it. He says, the point of resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning, for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. He goes on to say that these activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly or a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what God, what we may call building for God's kingdom. This might be revolutionary for some of you. Because for some of us, we may have just simply thought Christianity is sort of this island that we reside on, hoping, longing for the time when we can get off this island to go to someplace better. I hate to, well, I'm glad to actually be the bearer of good news for you. That is not Christianity. What Christianity is that God is actively, presently working for the good of humanity and ultimately the place where humanity dwells, a.k.a. this planet Earth. God cares about this place. God cares about you. God is making all things new. And this is what the whole work, this is what the resurrection is all about. It's what the resurrection points to. Jesus did not rise again into some spiritual disembodied thing. He rose again into a body. And one of the very first things he does after he rises, he goes and sits down and has a meal. Like, I mean, that's crazy. Why? Because he's wanting to make the point. This, physical, this physicality that we embody actually matters to God. God cares about it, which means that we should care about it too. We should care about all that God is up to in this world. And that means that we have a task 
to perform. We have a role to play. We have actions, good works that what Paul would later on describe as good works, acts of serving God that we are invited to be a part of. Now, again, we are not saved by these good works. We are not saved by somehow doing good things, but we are saved to doing good works because this is what God is up to in this world. That's what the resurrection teaches us. Next slide as we go on into this and kind of wrap things up. That living in light of resurrection means, number one, again, orienting our lives around a new authority. Number two, entering in the highest place of belonging. Thirdly, stepping into the work of new creation. Fourthly, involves finding comfort with this promise, the promise of God. Listen to how he describes this. Jesus says, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus, before he sends his followers out into the world, He wants to send them out with this deep, powerful, potent, weighty promise. I'm not sending you out alone. You're not having to try to figure things out on your own, all by yourself. This is, I'm with you. And I will guide you. I will lead you. I'll protect you. I'll be your comforter in the midst of this. Uh, There is a 19th century, 1800s, preacher, a guy by the name of Sage Spurgeon. And if you don't know who Spurgeon is, you you need to. He's he's amazing. Um, uh, Read this uh, quote to you. Uh, He was one of the most amazing preachers of of all time, in my opinion. Um, Find him anywhere on the internet, and you will be stoked. Spurgeon has a way. Now, mind you, this is kind of written in old English language, so just listen to what he has to say. Hopefully, it'll make sense. He says this, What power resides in thus says the Lord? The man who can grasp by faith, he has said, has an all-conquering weapon in his hand. What doubt will not be slain by this two-edged sword? What fear that which shall not fall smitten with a deadly wound before this arrow from the bow of God's promise? He says, will not the distresses of life and the pangs of death, will not the corruptions within and the temptations without, will not the trials from above and the temptations from beneath all seem but light afflictions when we can hide ourselves behind the mighty fortress of, he said, it's a great statement which he describes. This is actually the opening words of a sermon on this particular passage. You know what the name of the sermon is? It's, this, never, 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 never. That was the name of a sermon. And all, and all with the uh, exclamation mark at the end. So I'm not like yelling. I'm just trying to be faithful to what the title is. Five nevers. The whole point is that I will never leave you, never forsake you, never turn my back on you. So what I would suggest to the degree that we see ourselves living in light of the resurrection, asking the question, what does that really look like? Well, it looks like all these things again. I'll reiterate them. It looks like, number one, us really stepping into new creation. It looks like us finding our comfort with this promise. It looks like us entering to this highest place of belonging. And it looks like us really orienting our lives around a new authority. The question I leave you with is, how do you line up with that? Again, this is not about you trying to figure out something on your own to just make religion more functional for you. That's not what Jesus came to do. He came to launch new creation. Guys, that's massive. It's a massive task. It's a massive fulfillment of this incredible storyline of the entire Bible. This is to settle for religion, to settle for nothing more than going to church once a week or a small group once a week, is to settle too small for what God has. You have been tasked, given the responsibility to enter into, to orient your life, to align the sum total of your morality, your ways, your thought, your thinking, your processing, all of that 
with the ways of what God is up to in this world. All things, Jesus says at the very end of the book, will be made new. What we see in the end of the Bible is Jesus literally wiping away every tear, every sorrow, every pain. Why? Because everything that has been laced with death will be done away with. You know that. God is on a mission, literally, to kick the hell out of this earth. Seriously. He's literally in this process right now. That's what his, his big aim is. Is anything that has been tainted by death or destruction or ruin, hell, the fires of hell, the way Jesus described it, he's on a mission to somehow re, to remove this entirely. And one day all of creation will bear testimony that has been read. That's what we're invited to be a part of that. That's why everything we do by aligning our lives up under the authority of King Jesus totally matters. So, I'm done. 